This is Sacrilegious with your host, Gary Latterman. Well, it's great to be back, and I'm very happy to have a special guest today to be my conversation partner for a, a brief period. Um, I have with me John Shule, and uh, his life uh, to me is quite storied and is a journey that uh, speaks to uh, so much of, of uh, cultural history uh, in the last 60 years or so. So let me um, introduce John. Uh, John was born in Chicago and grew up in Miami Beach. Um, he left Florida in 1966 and then studied at NYU, the village campus, during the mid and late 60s. Uh, he helped to organize the first BN in uh, the city and was an early member of the League of Spiritual Discovery uh, with Timothy Leary. He spent time with Timothy and Rosemary in Millbrook in New York and was involved in Tim's Defense Fund, holding together along with the Rosemary up until uh, Tim's jail escape in 1970. After the second escape from Eldridge Cleaver's Black Panthers in Algeria, Rosemary and John spent 10 years on the run, avoiding the FBI, Interpol, Richard Nixon, and John Mitchell in four continents. Uh, when he was able to return in the mid-80s, from that point onward, John was involved with high-performance computing and was an invited as a guest speaker at the 25-year deep space exploration at NASA JPL. He's published and edited numerous volumes and papers on reconfigurable high-performance computing Currently, he lives in California and is working on advanced discovery engine algorithms, utilizing harmonic resonance theories developed from works done decades earlier with Rosemary in Sicily. And he continues to merge the spiritual and practical paths in his daily life. So excellent to have you here uh, with me. And um, it's already uh, just in that short little introduction qu quite a lot that's encapsulated in such a, a short little bio but welcome well thank you gary with all of that said i i just want to maybe start if we can given your background and all that you've seen from those tumultuous uh, years in the 60s uh when psychedelics made their appearance, uh, the sort of first naissance, the, the first explosion of awareness of psychedelics in the 60s. So from that point to the present, uh, with our current psychedelic renaissance, when we are seeing all kinds of interest uh, across all kinds of fields in psychedelics for all, for all kinds of purposes, but I'm curious to get your observations and just comments on this current state of, of psychedelics in our culture. Well, first of all, thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I do hope that uh, those listening will find it of interest. The current state of exploration of psychedelics 
is something that had to happen eventually. And when I say that, I say that because in the history of psychedelics, or what I say are psychic accelerators, that mankind's culture have been dealing with psychoaccelerators for a very long time. I think if you know Terence McKenna, uh, he did a number of writings and lectures on the theories uh, that, in fact, uh, man's current consciousness was accelerated many thousands of years ago when a monkey happened to eat uh, Anamita muscaria, survived it, and found their buddy that they sit around the fire circle with and said, hey, you got to try this. And so tribal use of psychoaccelerants has been for a long time. When we entered the modern age, two seminal things happened in the late 40s. Uh, and both had to do with the will of man. One was the will of man splitting uh, the atom. That was a molecular, atomic-willed event. And shortly within that same period of time, man also created a molecule that accelerated consciousness, and that was LSD. And in the late 40s, when these two things were discovered, they sent a, what I like to say, a, a, a molecular jingle through the pond of consciousness of humanity. And the first people that got a hold of the advanced psychoaccelerant called LSD uh, was the Defense Intelligence Department of the United States of America. And as a matter of fact, the first batch of LSD that was made commercially available, they bought everything. And they were looking at studying the psychoaccelerant as a weapon. But at the same time, to justify it in the society, they also uh, invested in what were medical or experimental psychological endeavors that were sponsored at major universities. All of this was under the umbrella of MKUltra. And so MKUltra not only supported the use of LSD for defense intelligence department stuff, but also uh, supported Harvard and a number of other universities in early days. Well, about the time that they had realized that, in fact, they couldn't use LSD as a weapon, and at this time, the few universities that were allowed to explore this, one was Harvard, where Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Ralph Metzner were at, they were discovering that this was a tremendous tool. And because their background was scientific, psychological, uh, the explorations were for the use in psychology and medicine. Then another event happened. The event that the government said, well, wait a minute, if we can't use this for a weapon, let's shut it down. And they made it a class one. And what a class one narcotic or drug or chemical means is this is good for nothing. 
not for experimentation, not for anything. It's one of those condemned molecules. And about the same time, right. uh, historically, as many know, Leary and Metzner and uh, Alpert were thrown out of Harvard. And the entire medical investigation was tightened up and shut down. And what that did for the next, what is this now, uh, 50 years, 50 years, Gary, it sent it underground. And when it sent it underground, what it did is it opened up the spiritual use and or the party use of these psychoaccelerants. But we always felt that this shutdown and control of this had to, at some day, be released again. And so I'm not surprised what's going on now, because it's a catch-up now. And what will be very interesting, at least from the historic standpoint, is to see how this new generation of explorers go through the forest and what branches they hit on the way through the forest that were already hit many, many years ago. Uh, Gary, there's if someone is interested in this period of time because the medical use is not something new, this is how it began. Um, there's a wonderful book called uh, Timothy Leary, The Harvard Years, and it's a very academic book of going back into history and pulling up the early papers of the people like Houston Smith and Ralph Metzner, Richard Alpert, and, and Aldous Huxley, who were on the bleeding edge of this advanced psychoaccelerant called LSD. Well, that was a long answer to your short question, <laughs> but it had to have some history. Surely. And the history is important uh, before we get more into uh, the contemporary scene. Uh, but let me just, off the bat, just get you to unpack or explain your use of that term, the psychic accelerators. Well, I, I sort of agree with the focus that Terrence did many years ago in the history of where does the relationship between accelerating the perception and projection of connections within the brain to an active will of humans. And that's why I, I believe that, yes, chances are our early, early ancestors by accident in going and eating plants did happen to hit one of these plants. And these plants, all Mother Nature, Pancha and Mama, whether they be ayahuasca or peyote or psilocybin or mesculine in its uh, in its organic form these have existed for long periods of time and in general in the early part of the time they were unique in that your doors of perception were cracked open and in the early histories, the people who could handle this crack in the door were generally shamans or the weird one in the tribe who became the spiritual guide. So there's a lot of collective history in our culture, tribal cultures from India 
to the American Indians that use vegetable kingdom accelerators to expand their minds. Right. And expanding the mind, um, even though that has a obviously a certain connotation in our cultural context, when you think about it in those terms, in sort of the er, you know kind of early human terms of consuming these natural plants, and what effect it had, I mean, it, it it did crack the door open, but it also had implications for health, mental, spiritual, phys, physical. Um, it had uh, implications for accessing powers. It had all kinds of implications and purposes. Um, which I think is also an important part of that uh, deeper history when we we see today psychedelic renaissance and the validity of its uses is is pretty much narrowed down to a psychological therapeutic purpose. People used it for spiritual reasons. I, I don't know if we would use the phrase recreational, but there's still uh, that sense that these psychedelics in various forms were consumed for lots of different reasons and had all kinds of effects. Well, that's why in the early years in Millbrook, after Tim came back with Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzger, that the focus was on maps as the areas that we were exploring were perceptively and projectively new territories Due to their scientific backgrounds, they were searching for maps that could be used for this experience. And what early on discovered was that the maps that best applied to this acceleration happened to exist in the Navajo peyote rituals, in the ayahuasca rituals, in these rituals from tribal consciousnesses that use these four yes, spiritual, but at a tribal level, they were used for health and well-being because the well-being of the right. tribe came about from these experiences. So for us, we had the fortune of, of being close to the head of the peyote tribe of the Navajo Samu, and we would have sessions with him, and that was a tremendous help. Why? Because you can go all out there, but to have a guide to at least put you in a direction, a navigational direction, can tremendously affect the results. So set and setting and some kind of a purpose, whether it be focused or not, became part of the ritual of the experience. And, and yes, partying was there, uh, all of that. But mm. at the at the more investigative levels, it was spiritual, right? And it could be many things all at one time too, which is also a difficult uh, orientation to have in in our, you know the sort of our current contemporary society, which uh, and especially relies on science as a authorizing, legitimizing kind of force, especially around drugs of, of various kinds. Very interesting. Uh, and those guides, too, obviously uh, are quite adept 
in a, in a, in a very well-rounded way. They know how to deal with the spiritual, with the psychological, the mental, you know, and the physical. And, and that, I think, uh, will be important looking into the future as the psychedelic renaissance and its various formations seems to be focused on the, the, the real critical value of the guide. Um, yes, but also remember, we're playing catch-up now. So for 50 years, science hasn't had their ability to probe and look around and cut up and investigate. So for a period of time, probably the entire psychedelic uh, information manifestation is going to be more to catch up on the medical uh, of it. The, uh, the spiritual right. was because of the force of it in the underground. You know, and, and we all became the journeyman experimenters. Uh, the early, early guidebook that was done uh, after uh, Metzner, Leary, and Alpert were asked to leave uh, Harvard is they went down to Mexico and looking to investigate how is that, where's the next communication step? And they spent a great deal of time with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, which goes through bardos and all of these flags that really have to do with transcendental or psychic acceleration experiences. And the result of that was really the first focused guide specifically for the psychedelic experience, and it was called the psychedelic experience. That was very early right. on. That was, uh, yeah, I'm, it it sounds pretty important again in in the ongoing evolution of of psychedelics and that spiritual underside that you're talking about. This is clearly a, a, a an appeal to more quote unquote Eastern forms of spirituality. Uh, well, which that was arrived at. seemed more in seemed more in line than than the monotheistic uh, you know traditions that everyone in America was used to. Well, the the in the beginning and in the end of the psychoaccelerated experience, no matter how many people you're with, however bigger the party is, or whether you're sitting alone by a tree under a waterfall, the experience is a self-realization experience. And what do you do with that moment of self-realization? And remember that after mm. it becoming a class one, we necessarily weren't around people that needed medicinal or medical help. We were around people that were exploring. What, what, where is this opening going? Uh, I had a dear friend. Uh, we were sitting in in a house, uh, a wooden house, in the middle of uh, the Woodland Canyons, uh, many years ago in Laguna, and he had been using off and on a musician heroin. And just one night, he said, "You know, I got to stop this. Let's just take a big dose LSC." And the man never touched heroin again. Now. That is cause and effect, willed cause and effect. Now, he was able to do it as a self-realization, but it still pointed to the direction that there was this wonderful healing factor for those who needed to be healed. Right. Which is what we've seen, you know, both in terms of the um, controlled medical studies, but then also 
and just people's anecdotal experiences of, of, of using psychedelics and what, in many cases, but not all, can be a real transformative, beneficial opening new realization, new sense of, of self-awareness, and cosmic awareness, of course, too. At Millbrook is when Tim uh, focused on the next sort of guide book, and that was based upon the Tao Te Ching. And it's called, it was called the Psychedelic Prayers. And that was originally written in like 66 or 67, although there was a republishing of it recently in uh, 1997 uh, by Rowan Publishing, The Psychedelic Prayers. And even to today, there are psychedelic prayers that I will bring out certain kohans out of it during times of either confusion or, or disorientation and uh, the psychedelic prayers was Tibetan Book of the Dead was very dense. The psychedelic prayers are like little flags on a fast downrun on the ski run, and they do um, suggest doorways in and out of either confusion or clarity. So those who are exploring with psychedelics, especially the mineral ones like LSD and, and thus, and they haven't seen the psychedelic prayers, it really is uh, very much a, a flower and an incense in your experience. Hmm. Well, and a very practical, uh, useful uh, text for yes. As you, as you, as, as we mentioned in your introduction, a kind of merging of the spiritual and, and the practical in daily life, uh, which I suppose is important in, in the long run. There are times when one is accelerating uh, through the experience that there are discernible perception projection alterations. Uh, some of them we interpret it as going from uh, the visual to the cellular level. On a hallucinogenic uh, stage, the doorway to that is if you should look at your hand and you start to see the veins and the blood. And at these particular transition times, sometimes your senses are so being activated that any kind of stimulants can vary the direction of your acceleration. And in many times, people who have been confused or or stuck in a certain kind of perception projection loop where they're projecting a condition and then that condition becomes something they perceive. Uh, an example of the use of the psychedelic prayers is one of the sutras that says, muddy waters, muddy waters. Water becomes clear through stillness. Be still, be clear. These kind of very simple sure. <laughs> linear thoughts uh, it can be directly uh, effective in sure. going through certain passages. So the work that was done after it was made a class one, at least in the areas that I was with, which was 
uh, Alan Watts, Timothy, uh, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, uh, these were people who were bridging the gap from pre-psychedelics to post-psychedelics, and they were pointing us to the East because the East had dealt with these kind of dissolving and coagulatings of consciousness, whereas the Western uh, patriarchal religions, uh, they would get you to that point, but then they would forbid you to explore over that point. Sign the contract, um, be baptized, uh, be bar mitzvahed, and we'll take care of everything, just be a good guy. That's why we went to the East. You know, not some yeah. Eastern person came over and mesmerized us. It was part of the right. exploration. Right. And perhaps that the sense that the psychedelic experience and impact couldn't be understood on its own. It was important to put it in some other kind of spiritual dialogue or, or some, some uh, more me meaningful, accessible context. Which was very fluid, because I remember a time when we were doing these celebration concerts. We were doing them. Tim traveled, but the original ones were done in New York City at the old Jewish Vaudeville Theater on Second Street, Second Avenue, and they were the Death of the Mind, and they were uh, the the Journey to the East. And these were four-hour multimedia presentations that Tim and other members of the league would do that would bring you through an experience. And I remember at that time that Richard had just come back from spending about eight months in San Francisco. And he was backstage in his bell-bottom striped pants and fluffy shirt and, and uh, uh, like that. And Tim was out on stage in this white Indian shirt with beads and a flower in his hat talking about Buddha. And Richard turns to Rosemary and said, what is this, uh, what is this religious mumbo-jumbo going on? So, yes, it was very mm. fluid because it wasn't just all spiritual. It was also life experience. Right. And one could not, even though we were East Coast intellectuals from Harvard kind of stuff at all, you couldn't deny the realism of the Grateful Dead, Owsley, and what was happening in San Francisco. Sure. Right. Oh no, that's uh, and it's a such a striking contrast with what again, sort of uh, how we're talking about the, the stuff, the psychedelics today, and how fairly controlled and constrained that is. But let me also ask John, when how did you get into that gang, into that group? I mean, when when was that? And um, you must have taken your life in a completely different direction. I was still in high school when I heard the jingle LSD. And I knew I was going to take it right from the beginning. One, uh, anyone with any sense that was an adult, the warnings were clear. So that made it interesting. And then karmically, I was just destined to be a self-explorer. And ultimately, when you do that, no matter who's around you, you're jumping off into another realm. So it started there. And when I moved to New York City and studied at NYU, I was in the village and got involved with a lot of the energy of that time. 
helped build the sound system in the first multimedia nightclub called the Electric Circus, uh, worked with some brilliant people. And all of that was a hot spot. And within that hot spot, uh, I met uh, one person or another. I studied Northern Indian classical music, met the Hindus that came to Columbia University. And slowly it led, not so slowly, but led to uh, an evening I was invited to a house of a, of a lady named Nena Graboy. Now, it's not an easy book to get a hold of, but she wrote a book called One Foot in the Future. Now, who was Nena Graboy? Nena Graboy was like the Peggy Guggenheim of the psychedelic period. She was like a magnet that just brew all these different people together. And I had known her, met her, and she invited me to a party at her house and coming out of the elevator into uh, her apartment, her uh, area, uh, my God, there, there was at one moment I was to meet Allen Ginsberg, uh, Timothy, Ralph Metzner, Richard Alpert, and, and of course, Rosemary, who was important in many ways throughout my life. And that's where I, I first got hooked up to that level. And that night, uh, uh, Timothy, with his new girlfriend, Rosemary, who he hadn't married yet, had a fight. And so Rosemary went home with uh, Richard Alpert, and Timothy came home to my place. And that's where the relationship started. And it was uh, interesting because at that time I was 17, 18 years old. So it was... Uh, a, you know, a real, a real jump because I was put around uh, some magnificent mental, intellectual, spiritual people. Great, great mentors, great guides. Um, clearly. And what a group to just be introduced to on one night uh, as, a, as a teenager or young adult. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly um, a pivotal a pivotal moment and and from 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 there you became close a confidant and and you were intimately involved in the the league of spiritual discovery yep yep how did and that that what was that how did that come about that's an interesting one okay the spiritual thing was happening because fundamentally if you weren't sick and outrageously crazy you were taking psychoaccelerants to discover, not to cure. Big difference. What, what, where are you driving to? Oh, well, I'm driving to cure myself of this terrible thing I have. Or I'm driving to discover what's next or what is that I don't know. And that discovery experience was spiritual in its nature, one, due to the fact that the experiments were no longer being taken place inside of a laboratory with a couch and two doctors looking at you while you're flying. We were taking it on a 2,000-acre property in which one hill was called Lunacy Hill and the next hill, the higher one, was called Ecstasy Hill before you got to another area. <laughs> so these Great. things were, were intrinsically spiritual. But... When it became obvious that the pressure was not going to stop on Tim, 
because the man couldn't use LSD as a weapon. So the man wanted LSD out of the world. And in fact, since it was a class one narcotic, uh, very shortly more LSD was being distributed worldwide than Sandoz was making after the class one. So people were taking it, you know. And one of the lawyers came to Tim and said, look, I believe that there's going to be some litigation and some issues coming. And the one area that may be an area that we should consider as a barrier to entry in a defense is the freedom of religion. And there's enough history of religious taking psychoaccelerants. And that was the moment that Timothy wrote, start your own religion. And that's when we started League for Spiritual Discovery was primarily to have a legal defense because it had an IRS number. It was a legally incorporated religion. And so from the standpoint of the Constitution and that, uh, it made sense. Now, where does all this come from? Mm -hmm. This comes from acceleration of time and space of a collective group that was really pushing the envelope and was going to get pushback. And the pushback came. You know, it, it came all the way to the point that Tim had to climb out of a prison he was never going to get out of, St. Louis Obispo. The first escape. Yeah. So that's where the league came about. And what got him behind bars again? I'm sorry? Yeah. That's where the league came from. The league's purpose was for that, it was for that legal event, but it took on other aspects because fundamentally we were all experiencing spiritual self-realization you know it, it, that was the experience that was going on sure right and this is uh, helped to take it out not only for legal purposes but it also created a community as well so it's not simply individuals tripping to experience self-realization right and it, and it also gave a center for the information to go out because then right. the league was able to publish the, 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 the psychedelic prayers, which uh, had a tremendous influence on people who have, uh, have explored that way. Uh, later on, another group of motorcycle enthusiasts out in Southern California uh, discovered LSD and took a trip out to Timothy. And uh, upon returning from Melbrook, they started their own religion called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. That was a legalized religion in the state of California. So yeah. that that's how that legal thing started. And and it it had aspects of revolution in it, but fundamentally it was it, it grounded people into thinking in a certain kind of uh, matrix. Which was uh, uh, somehow an impeding matrix, or was it the matrix was more of a positive uh, perspective? Well, I think it was, it was, look, positive can be interpreted as impeding because it puts limitations on the territory. <laughs> but the, the ultimate result of any kind of self-exploring 
when when you're not so ill that you're looking for a cure to an illness is a self-realization event mm -hmm. and that's what it did it, it it brought that focus that focus into what is the path and and how do you go through your journey mm -hmm. doesn't mean you haven't had a lot of parties with it <laughs> sure well right and we know that and again we know how these things all mix together but um it was also a time of turning to cannabis to amphetamine to heroin to uh, continuing use of alcohol so the landscape is saturated yeah <laughs> psycho i don't know they're not psycho accelerants but psychoactive drugs well there's two ways that consciousness shuffles its jingles and it all has to do with synapses and neurons and either your psychic accelerant changes your perception by disconnecting neurons those would be the opiates the uh, 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 the heavier uh, disconnection they bring you to a place uh, then there are the psychoaccelerants which do it by connecting more both have their ups and downs <laughs> you know uh, right. but that i believe is the real molecular choice now our generation were pharmacology aware we knew the difference between a methamphetamine and a psilocybin we knew the difference between an opiate and a DMT. So it wasn't confusion for us. Now, what we learn right. later is when we were so suppressed and we went underground, which was the 70s and 80s into the 90s, only until now, there's this gap of people that grew up with these same kind of chemical accelerants, but with no understanding of what they are and what they do they're all the same you know this goes back to uh the single message that a whole generation received from our leaders and that was nancy reagan just say, just say no yeah that's all you need to know is the word no you don't need to know anything else so there was a dumb downing of the understanding and i think it's very very important for the individual soul whether it's for self-realization or you're a doctor doing a willed curing, that you deeply understand the difference between perception change by disconnecting neurons or connecting neurons. That's why, personally, I've had it, but I'm not a fan of ketamine. It's a disconnector. Right. right. But still, yeah, part of uh, this new medical landscape of uh, here, we've got something well, that new. you can do. No. Well, no, not new, but yeah, I meant it's new. It's not new. Yeah, it's exactly what medicine science does. Well, it's new in the sense of in Atlanta, there are ketamine outlets yeah. where we can go. And that is new and, uh, uh, for sure, but yeah, not, not but so it's new. It's like Oxycontin availability in other words yes it's available yes it's doing something but they're going to discover like they did in the 30s with ketamine it was a magic drug 
but they wound up discovering it wasn't worth the few people it helped because the other end of it was so dramatic. It's like uh, another example, medical example, pregnisone. When pregnisone was discovered, it was the miracle anti-inflammatory. Right. People would take it and their arthritis would go away. Well, it took 40 years to find out that above a certain use, it was destroying your liver. And that's why pregnisone is not the magic drug today it was. Yeah, well, that is a cycle. It is a familiar cycle, especially the pharmaceutical companies, the miracle drug, the new the, miracle remember, drug. Remember, the pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical is not the boogeyman. It's the collective Agreed. idea that the only way I want to be cured is by instant gratification. I don't want to do the work to be cured. Give me the pill that tomorrow I feel better. And so when a doctor is confronted with people that have attention deficit issues, rather than meditation or a self-control of this, no, let's give them Ritalin or these other chemicals that isolate synaptical connections so that their behavior is changed like you can see it, instant gratification. So it's that dynamic that's driving this whole pharmaceutical, the desire for one science to be this great god of consciousness and then fulfilling this instant gratification, you know, point click. Well, I don't like where I am, press reset right. and start the game over, that kind of thought. Right. Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, there are those contradictions and tensions in culture that uh, are going to play out, I think, as we see where psychedelics go in the future. Over the, the years, and as you get older, you pay a lot of attention to cycles. And we're right now going through a 50-year golden cycle. So 2022 is really 1972, but at a different octave. It's the gold octave. And many of the things that happened in the last five years are just a variation of what happened 50 years ago. But the harmonics are a little different. But these cycles, I see these cycles now, especially the use of psychedelic that for at least a period of uh, a number of decades, we will go through a tremendous clearinghouse of what psychedelics can be used for which illnesses and all of that. But I will tell you that probably more L is being taken today around the world than ever before. And it's not all in medical studies. Right. Right. Same thing with mushrooms. Uh, even more with mushrooms. Right. I mean, I mean it, even more. Th there's a big... They're all over. Yeah, the, there's a big difference. The reason I mentioned at the beginning this molecular jingle change in the late 40s is for this reason. This is where science and wisdom begin to merge, but science is pulled away from because I can't deal with wisdom. You have to have faith and hope, and that's not who we are. We're empirical. But in, in the chemical evolution psychoaccelerants 
prior to the 40s were generally only from the vegetable kingdom, which means the molecular action that created that specific molecule that then accelerates or decelerates connections, these all came out of a life form breathing energy on the planet in gravity. So you have your psilocybins, you have your mescalines, you have your all, any kind of the vegetable kingdom drugs, they're vegetable kingdom universes, which means they're protected on a spiritual level by Panchamama or the mother. And that's why even with the larger doses of ayahuasca or psilocybin, yes, you see visions of, of the universe and all, but there's always familiar gravitational characters around you, a panther, a bird. Some, this is Panchamama's universe. What happened when Hoffman isolated LSD is this was a mineral kingdom event. And so it didn't have a relationship to the vegetable kingdom. And what it has is another set of properties that don't exist in the vegetable kingdom. And at least the most obvious or, or early ones that, that we saw was the loss of gravity. You might think you lose gravity under ayahuasca, but you don't because you're always there. But under certain pure LSD experiences, gravity goes away. Colors go away. And th that is a different kind of realm. And you don't necessarily have Punch and Mama, the mother there to protect you. So there really is a big difference in, in which area you're going to, through, just in terms of technical. Sure. I mean, spiritual, if your soul is supposed to understand and know, it'll get it however it'll get it. Right. I was going to ask that, yeah, that if the, 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 the content of or the experience of self-realization is different, you know, in those two different kinds of uh, universes, as you put it. Uh, domains, domains, because it really is a domain. It's a yes. domain of the vegetable kingdom, of the mineral kingdom. And, and these are part of the maps that we got from looking into alchemy and and guides from uh hermetic sciences which also give you information on things like dissolving and coagulating you know what wh mm -hmm. if, if you are on an accelerated experience and you want to look into a mirror make sure you understand how you're perceiving and projecting so that you don't get attached to whatever beauty or horror you're going to see in that mirror <laughs> Because whatever beauty you see, if it's a smile, it will turn to a frown the longer you sit in front of the mirror. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. Well, um, look, this is great. Um, I am completely fascinated with these topics, um, but I think we'll end it for now. Um, and my plan will be to have a part two where sure. we can take this... Uh, a little uh, into more into the present and, and some of your uh, more recent work uh, that in itself is also fascinating and spiritually relevant. But we're going to save that for another time. So let me say thank you for uh, talking with me today. And um, I look forward to the next time.
And thank you too, Gary. I appreciate having the platform to be able to answer any questions or giving any kind of insight into experiences. Fantastic.